you want to find the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, Matthew 22. Now, do you ever uh, listen to a, like a reporter and you're listening to them asking questions in an interview situation and they're kind of like wondering, like, are, are they asking the truth or do they just want to nail this person that they're talking with? You know what I'm talking about, where they're, they're asking questions in such a way that you get the idea they're really not truth seekers so much as they are reputation destroyers. And if you're like, well, I'm not sure, Grant, if you, I know what you're talking about. In this upcoming presidential election cycle, I want you to listen and see if you can identify some folks that are not, they're posing as truth seekers, but really they are reputation destroyers. It's going to happen once or twice a day, okay? I just want you to get ready for it because this is something about human nature. See, if you don't, if you don't like someone, why, what you want to do is if you can't seem to get rid of them, what you want to do is you want to make them look bad. In fact, you'd like them to kind of start tripping over their own words, fall into their own snare. And this has been around for a long time. This isn't something new with American politics or reporting. This has been around for a long time. In fact, when we come to Matthew chapter 22, this is exactly what the Jewish leaders are trying to do with Jesus. They're going to come across as we're truth seekers and we know that you, Jesus, speak the truth and you defer to no one. We've got a few questions for you. Can you, can you help us out since you're a man of such great wisdom and high esteem? And when you come to Matthew chapter 22, there's a series of questions that are being thrown at Jesus. The Jewish leadership at this point in the gospel are absolutely hostile to Jesus. He has confronted them on their hypocrisy. He shows up in their temple. He actually flips over all their tables. He declares to them, hey, I want my house to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of robbers. And you are the one who is stealing from the people. And you're stealing from God himself. He makes these declarations that he's the Messiah. In fact, when he comes into Jerusalem, there's actually people that are calling out, Hosanna, son of David. And even children in the temple are crying out and calling him the Messiah, the son of David. All of this infuriates the Jewish establishment because they themselves see themselves as the authority. They want the attention drawn upon them. And Jesus has walked into their home court, their temple, not God's temple, their temple in their mind. And he's wrecking havoc and making them look bad. And they've got to put an end to Jesus. A couple weeks ago, we saw in Matthew chapter 22, they actually thought they had the ultimate silver bullet when they asked Jesus, hey, is it lawful to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? What do you think? You see, they thought they had nailed him on that one. Jesus said, hey, if it's got Caesar's image on it, why don't you go ahead and pay him? However, if you have God's image upon you and all people are created in the image of God, then give to God what rightly, rightfully belongs to him. You would have thought by that point they would just, that would end it all. But no, they're going to reload and you're going to find their final series of questions in beginning in Matthew chapter 22, verse 23. And in these interchanges, you're going to find that Jesus is going to actually answer some of the most important questions of life. Now, these people that are asking the questions, don't get me wrong, they don't want to know the answer. But let me ask you, do you really want to know the, most, the answers to the most important questions of life? Or... Do we find that just life is just so engaging and we're so engrossed in all the details and all of our little problems and we're so trying so desperately to be entertained 
that we always just think on the horizontal and we never really get to the most important questions of life. Either way, whether you hate Jesus or you, you like Jesus or you're tolerating Jesus, but you never ask and get the answers to the most important questions of life, it leaves you hollow and shallow. Well, I want you to pay attention because Jesus is going to give us what we absolutely need. In Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 23, we're going to find these Sadducees come. They've got a question, but behind this question, Jesus is going to give us an answer to a critically important question. And that is, what will eternity with God really be like? Well, that's not exactly on the forefront of the mind of the Sadducees, but Jesus is going to give us an insight. What does it look like when you and I, who are in relationship with God, when we die and pass away? You know, we're, we are on a line of eternity, and this life is but a dot. And when someone, loved one, passes away, or we're actually face-to-face with our own mortality, we then start really questioning and thinking, what, what exactly will happen? Well, Jesus is going to give us some real insight. You want to pay attention. Look at verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him. Now, these Sadducees, we've run into them before. These were kind of the aristocratic liberals of the day. They were in charge of the temple. Most of them were uh, had the occupying seats in the Sanhedrin, which is kind of the ruling body of the Jews. Not all of them. There were some Pharisees. Uh, they were they were liberal and in the sense that they didn't really believe in the supernatural. OK, they held to the, only the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch. Those were the only five that they thought were scripture. And they denied all things supernatural. Things like demons, angels, they thought that was just a bunch of nonsense. The whole idea of like the resurrection from the dead, like some sort of eternal life, like there's something after you die, they thought that was total nonsense. They just, just totally wrote that off. They were, they were sympathetic with Rome. They actually hated the Pharisees. They thought the Pharisees, with all their traditions and their legalism and wanting to follow every minutiae of the law and stuff, they thought that was totally ridiculous. And the Pharisees, on the other hand, thought the Sadducees were heretics especially because of their total rejection of the resurrection. And they wanted to show, they're kind of like doing two things. They wanted to show that, indeed, the whole idea of a resurrection, the supernatural, is a complete myth, it's totally bunk, it's false. And they also wanted to make Jesus look real bad. And so they come with their question. And notice how they all loaded up here, and they, they call him, verse 24, teacher. they asking, teacher, okay, they're appealing to him as a rabbi, he said, Moses said, if a man dies having no children and his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now, what they're doing here, they're citing something out of Deuteronomy 25, and, and this was the practice. Okay? This is well known. And what would happen is like, okay, so let's say you're a man, you're married to your wife, you die. Your brother is supposed to marry your wife in the event that you were childless for a few reasons. One, you want to have this woman protected, provided for. Your brother is going to do that. He will do that by legally marrying her. And also that if you have no child, that there is to be a child, hopefully, that's going to come through this union in which your inheritance, you're dead, your inheritance is going to go to your son and your family line is going to be continued. This was a big deal in Israel. To forsake that duty would to put you in a situation you're completely despised by all of Israel. It would be like spitting in the face of God and of your family to do that. Now, 
you and I are going like, oh, 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 man, I'm so glad I'm in the New Covenant and the New Testament era because I cannot imagine. You know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't know about your situation. Please don't tell me. OK, but some of you are like, I think I'd rather walk to the North Pole and back. I don't think I'd really want to marry the sister-in-law. OK, I, I, please help me. And they're, they're putting this situation in front of Jesus, though. And now, even though the law is given and they're familiar with it, they've got this amped up story. Wait, oh, these guys are good. Look at verse 25. Now, there were seven brothers, okay? There are seven brothers, and, and notice this, you might have missed this. There are seven brothers that are with us. They're trying to make this look like this is really happening. Man, Jesus, we're in a crisis. You've got to help us out. we got these seven brothers. They're with us. And the first married and died. And having no children, left his wife to his brother. And oh, you won't believe this, Jesus, but guess what happened? And also the second and the third, down to the seventh. I mean, you're like, think about it. The, you know, if this was really happening, if you're like the third brother or the fourth brother and your brother does die, like, oh, no, you know, like, I'm next, you know. And so they're like, they're telling the story. Everybody's like, oh, man, what a terrible situation. And they've got Jesus because all the crowd is like, oh, man, whose whose wife is she, is she going to belong to? Because look at verse 27. Last of all, the woman died. And then they go, hey, Jesus, help us out on this one here. <laughs> I just can't get this figured out. Verse 28. In the resurrection, you can almost hear him snicker. <laughs> the resurrection. You actually believe that people come back from the dead. In the resurrection, therefore, hey, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all married her. Gotcha. They're just like, they're hoping that Jesus' jaw just like, you see, there, see uh, the understanding of a lot of people of Israel is that the, the idea of resurrection is that you'd actually come back to life just kind of like it is here. It's not a reincarnation. It's just that, that eternal life, a resurrected life, is just kind of a continuation of life and our fallen humanity and all the sin and all the problems, and that you kind of endure forever in this sort of scenario. It's one of the reasons why the Sadducees totally rejected it. If you want to remember a quick way to remember how the Sadducees, you just remember this. The Sadducees were sad you see because they didn't believe in the supernatural. Okay, and they're like the resurrection. It's totally bogus, right? Because come on, are you saying that she would be married to to someone? Well, then which one? How could you be married to all seven at one time? That would be incest. The law absolutely condemns that, right? We got some we could show you. So obviously the resurrection is bogus, right, Jesus? That's what they're hoping will happen. Jesus will be defaced. They're going to be shown like our theology stripped of all supernatural, kind of the pathway of liberalism. We got it right. But listen to Jesus. But Jesus answered. When they saw Jesus' lips about ready to be moving, they're like, what is he going to say here? And he said to them, you are mistaken. You're wrong. Now, come on. They love to debate. Sadducees prided themselves in debating. But Jesus just flat out says, I don't care about tolerance. I don't care about relativism. You're wrong. I am the authority. You're mistaken. You are wrong. You are mistaken. And he listen to what he says. You don't understand. You are not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. 
You don't understand the scriptures, the word of God, nor do you understand the power of God. You are mistaken. And then he's going to tell them how it really is. Verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus is is doing something like confronting them, not only in the fact that they got it wrong on the resurrection, but when he mentions angels, they actually didn't believe in the angels. They didn't think such things existed. And Jesus says, let me tell you what life is really going to be like. You see, when you are with God and you pass from this life, we are going to take on like the entity and the existence of that of an angel. There's not going to be the need for marriage. And let me just tell you a little bit of what we can understand and defer, infer from these, these passages, especially this text. You see, when you and I pass away, we are going to consciously know our loved ones. But there's not going to be the need for marriage because we're going to be in a situation where we're going to actually already live forever. The race does not need to continually be propagated. We're going to be an experience of existence like the angels where there's absolutely no sin. There is no problems. There is no fear. There's no self-centeredness. There is the experience of relationship at a depth level that you and I don't even know. Now, if you're married and you love your spouse like I do, you're like, whoa, wait a second. I want to be really close to my spouse. Have I just spend eternity with her? Well, you're going to be able to do that. You're going to have the joy of a relationship without all the little breakdowns and the problems of our self-centeredness and our fears and our failures. But we're going to be able to enjoy a depth of relationship like that with all people. I mean, right now, you, you're sitting next to people and you're like, I'm nervous and I don't know how to talk. And, and you're, you're making passing judgments and you've got all your habitual sin and different ways you've written people off. All that's going to be gone. We're going to experience a fullness of life that only God can provide. You see, this is what it's going to be like in eternity. Hey, I know it's good here. And for some of you, it's actually not so good. I know that. Some of you are in a difficult relationship. Some of you are experiencing great amounts of pain. But guess what? Where we're going in the life to come, it is joy. No tears. It's the presence of God himself. Fears are gone. Sin is removed. It's a place of, of just absolute enjoyment and bliss and joy. I was reading of a, of a woman. She lived in the Appalachians. She was extremely poor. Uh, she lived in a shack. She had a bunch of children. She wasn't married. And these two people came to approach her to talk with her about the gospel. And, and they, they asked her, hey, would you like to have eternal life? And she's looking at them. And she, they said, would you like to live forever? And she like looks and the kids are crying. Her house is about ready to fall down. She's sw- in the sweltering heat. She has no food. She's dirty. And she goes, I don't think so. Okay. And a lot of people think that eternal life is going to be just kind of a continuation of this life. No, that is to misunderstand both the nature of life eternal and the presence and the quality of relationships. Friends, it is going to be great. And it is absolutely certain God who created life. Please do not buy into the myth of evolution that you're some sort of like the epitome of evolution. Because you're not. You've been created by God, designed for God, to know God, to experience God. You are a wonder. You're a walking miracle. The fact that you can breathe, live, move. But God who's created you has the power to resurrect you and to bring you to a completely different state of life like the angels experience. 
And when he says this, he's not only confronting them and telling them, let me tell you about the resurrection and what it's like. But he says, Jesus says, verse 31, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, I know you don't believe in that. I think I know that you think that's a myth regarding the resurrection of the dead. Notice what he says. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? This book, the scriptures, who's it from? Oh, a bunch of men got together, put it together, wove some nice little tales. It's myths. It's meant to be a religious experience for certain people. You want to have it? You can. Uh-uh. Jesus made it crystal clear. These words are given to us by God. They have the full authority of God. God who cannot lie. He spoke truth. And he says, you, listen up. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Verse 32 And here he quotes from the Pentateuch. In fact, the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. He says, you know, it's really funny. I know you only hold the first five books, but even Exodus 3, 6, the passage of the burning bush shows you that he's not the God of the dead. But of the living, he didn't say I was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Uh, they've now deceased and they don't they're just out of existence anymore. No, they are alive. Death separates us from people in this life, but it never separates us from God. He says, I am ego in me. I am God. And these people are with me and they endure and exist and enjoy me forever. What's eternity going to be like? Well, listen up to Jesus. And he points it out. Eternity is going to be a place of unending joy, of an immense, intense quality of relationship with the eternal God. And we're going to be alive and well in him. In fact, I'll tell you this. We will never be more alive than when we were with the pres- in the presence of God, with Christ himself. Now, that's an amazing question, isn't it? What is what will eternity with God really be like? Let me ask you another really good question. Another real good question is what really is the purpose of life? Well, you've got these interchanges taking place here. The Sadducees have been silenced. But we got the Pharisees. Remember the first go around, they actually sent their disciples to go ask Jesus about the poll tax. That obviously didn't work so well. They ended up looking real foolish, in fact, really, really bad. So this time, they're going to send their best guy, their top guy, the sharpest guy they've got, and they've got a question. They've got a question. They think this will do it. Jesus will not be able to answer this to the satisfaction of the crowds. And so verse 29, or excuse me, uh, verse 34, the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. And I'm sure they were thrilled about that. But they thought the Sadducees were a joke. They thought they were... Uh, completely hypocritical. They thought they were unorthodox. They thought they were heretics because of their denial of the resurrection. And I'm sure they were extremely happy to hear that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. Never mind that Jesus had just silenced them just a few minutes ago with their question about the poll tax. But they've got one more. And so they gathered themselves together. Here's, you can just see them huddling in the temple here. The people are like, okay, they're going to call another play. What will this be now? And one of them emerges. He's a lawyer. Lawyers, uh, we got the idea that, okay, they just know the, the law like 
the things of right and wrong and what justice is. No, a lawyer was like a scribe who studied the scriptures. They were like recognized authorities. They were the ones that knew the law backwards and forwards. And so they have their very best guy come and ask him a question, testing him. Do they really want the answer? Of course not. (laughs) They're trying to set a snare for Jesus. And I think they've got it. Verse 36. Teacher. Which is the great commandment in the law? Now, let me, a little bit about the Pharisees. They, they were fascinated by the law. For instance, they had actually had uh, taken the law and they had put it into 365 negative commands and 248 positive commands. And then they actually spent just hours and hours deliberating which was more important. And they actually had them all delineated down. And that would change in their order as they would argue. Whoever had the best argument, you could move certain laws up and down. And, you know, talk about a good time, but that's what they were doing, okay? And so they, this is not, this gives you insight on how they thought. This is, this is how they behaved. And so they're going to like, Jesus, you want to help us out here? You help the Sadducees out. That was really good, by the way. We really like that. But they're not, they walked away with their little tail between the legs. Help us understand, hey, what's the top commandment? Can you just deal with that for us? Because, see, if Jesus picks any of them, then they're going to go, uh-uh, well, what about the rest? Obviously, you're not from God. So they go, Jesus, we've got this little question for you. Verse 36, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? What is it? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And they're like, huh? And then he says, let me also tell you the second And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And Jesus says, hey, do you really want to know what the purpose of life is? Let me tell you what it is. It is to love God with everything of your being. He's not trying to delineate like, well, the heart is different from the soul, which is from the mind. What he's trying to do is say everything about you. Your emotion, your intellect, your will, your passions, your soul. This is the purpose of life. If you're here today and you're trying to squeeze life out of your job or your family or your status or your money, you are sorely mistaken. It is why you are always in a state of disarray and life seems rather shallow because you have created an idol out of something and trying to squeeze life out of it when life was meant to be in relationship with God. This is where life is, to love God with everything you have. And when the scriptures talk about loving God with your mind, it's not just that you think about God sometimes, but that you actually yield your fullness of your mind and say, God, I want to know everything there is about you, and I want you to use the mind you have given me for whatever task you've called me. For instance, many of you have careers. God has called you into that position just like he's called me to be a pastor, You honor and glorify God when you engage your mind to accomplish that which he has called you to do. Some of you are actually kind of at home and you're raising those kids. Engage your mind. Don't be like, I just got to get through this experience for the 18 years. No, use your mind to the glory of God to engage your kids, to raise them. Because why? We love God with everything we have. Uh, I talked with one guy and this was like kind of his hang up with Christianity. He thought he had to check your mind out at the doorway of the church, and then walk in. And Jesus says it's the exact opposite. You engage fully everything you have for the glory of God. 
We want to know God as he is, and he's given us a mind to do it. And let me tell you, you cannot exhaust the scriptures. God is immense, and you will never be able to fully fathom the depth of who we're in relationship with. And so he says, you want life? You want the number one commandment? It's to love God with everything you've got. And he says, and the second is inextricably tied to it, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, you can't really love God unless you have the capacity of loving your neighbor. Oh, I don't like that, Grant. <clears throat> Why couldn't Jesus just stop just with the first one? I mean, they only asked him the top one. Why did he have to give both? Because they're absolutely tied together. Please don't make this mistake like, oh, I'm a great lover of God. I just don't really like people. I don't like my family. I don't like the people in my church. I don't like people I live by. I don't like people that work. I don't like anybody. I just, I just love God. Listen to what, um, listen to what it said in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a, anybody happen to know what that is? Anybody's memory verse? He's a what? I heard it. A liar. <laughs> what? What? If you say you love God, but you hate your brother in scripture, you're a liar. And for the one who does not love his brother whom he can see, cannot love God whom he cannot see. You see, loving God and loving our neighbor, they're tied together. In fact, you're going to find that people who are truly coming to experience a love for God and a love of God, it has a way of reciprocating in loving others. And so, for instance, if you're facing a marital problem, let me ask you, how's your love for God? Why are you asking that? I'm having a marital problem. Because your love for God will flow into a love for others. If I can get folks loving God, I'm pretty certain that we can get them to love one another. Why? Because God will give us the strength to do it. And so he says, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this isn't like, oh, that's good. I'm really into myself. And now I got a scripture verse to just, this will be my life verse. I'm going to love myself. Actually, the idea behind it, okay, I'm sorry if I just wrecked your parade or you've been living like that for 20 years. It's really good you're in church this morning, you know. When he talks about loving yourself and loving your neighbor as yourself, it is to do what you would like to be done for you. And you do that for another. For instance, you love to be accepted and appreciated, respected, cared for, helped, don't you? then that is what you do for your neighbor. And on the basis of the love of God for God and the love of God in you, you have the capacity to do it. And God is really concerned with us loving him and loving others. You know the Ten Commandments? They're really broken down into two categories. First four, about what it looks like to love God. The, sec- the second, first, uh, the six through ten, is about loving other people and what that looks like. And friends, if you want to lead others to the kingdom of Christ... This is how it's done. People are attracted to those who truly love God and love other people. It's about that simple. And so you need to know something. Your relationship with God, it's actually tied to your relationship with other people. The object of life is not about money and power and prestige and possessions. The object of life, the purpose of life, is to love God, to know his love, and to be able to show that to other people. Now, how in the world do you learn to love God? Let's be honest. 
Maybe you're just kind of like, oh, I'm not sure if I love God. I kind of like God and I'm here today. Does that count? That kind of mentality? Let me tell you how you learn to love God. Because if you're right now and you're like, I haven't really thought about loving God. You learn to love God by seeing God as he really is. And how we do that is focused on the realities of our relationship with Christ. I find that when my love for God is waning, you know, I'm, I'm a person just like you are, okay? And, and you find like, okay, you might feel cool toward God. Don't get thrown off. Everybody faces that. The Psalms got all sorts of experiences about that. What you do, though, is don't just like, oh, I don't really feel like loving God, so I don't think I will. What you do is you direct your soul to focus on the realities of the riches of your relationship with Christ. Think of Jesus, how he lived, his righteous life, how he died for you, how he rose again, how he empowered you, how he forgives you, how he loves you unconditionally. He never puts you on probation. Do you ever think of that? He is always with you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. I find by thinking of the realities of Jesus Christ and me being united with him, what that does is it stimulates a love for God and it makes me deeper. And Jesus, as I focus upon him and draw strength from him because I'm yielded to him, it actually gives me the power to start loving people like I'm supposed to. And what does that look like? Like Jesus did. Jesus lived sacrificially. Jesus cared for the weak and the hurt and the homeless and the poor. He even cared for the grieving. And you know what? We can too as we experience the love of Christ in our heart. The secret really is find ourselves totally in love with the realities of what it means to be in relationship with Christ. Let me give you one other final question. We've got some pretty good ones so far. Well, let me ask let me ask the most important question. And Jesus is going to ask it. Who really is Christ? It's all going to come down to this. They've asked their questions. Jesus had answers. Jesus is going, you know what? I see how you really like questions. I've got one for you. I've got a really good question. You guys all listen up. Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, this is the question. The Christ, that's Greek, Christos, uh, Hebrew, Messiah. He says, whose son is he? Who is this Christ? And they knew it automatically. This was like, oh, I got this answer. I, I totally know it. Sabbath school, I got this covered. They said to him immediately, they didn't even have to think about it. He's the son of David because that is the messianic title. In fact, if you notice, we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, how many times Jesus is pointed out to be the son of David, all the way back from the very beginning, chapter 1. He's the son of David. That's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the son of David. And Jesus is like, good. That's really right. That's right. You got it. And he said to him, verse 43, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet? If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Ah, let me tell you what's going on here. You know the most oft-quoted psalm in the scriptures? Psalm 110, specifically verse 1, the very one that Jesus quotes here. Now, let me tell you what's going on here. They know that the Messiah is going to be the son of David. 
And this Psalm 110 was a psalm. It's called a messianic psalm. It is all about the coming Messiah. And notice what it says. Verse 44. The Lord said to my Lord. That first Lord in the in the Hebrew is Yahweh, the name given to God, the father, the one eternal God. And he says the Lord Yahweh. They never wanted to say the name Yahweh because they never wanted to be blaspheming it. So they said, we'll just never say it. So they always put in Adonai instead. So they said, the Lord said to my Lord and the second Lord, Greek kurios, Hebrew Adonai, another title for God. And so you see this conversation taking place between God, the father, God, the son. And David is is saying, the Lord said to my Lord, as David pens this psalm, he's saying, Yahweh says to my Lord, referring to God. David's calling this one Lord, Adonai, God. But at the same time, this very one is going to be his son. He is going to be fully God, Adonai, Lord. But he is also the Messiah is going to be the son of David, like spoken of in Second Samuel 7 or Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. He's going to be the son of David. He's going to be fully man, but he's going to be from the lineage of David. And so Jesus says, how in the world does this work? How could, how could the Christ be the son of David and at the same time be Adonai, Lord, fully God, fully man? And you know why he's asking this, don't you? Because he's it. And you need to know that they have to answer this question. Because notice what Jesus says. He actually quotes all of Psalm 110, verse 1. Until I put your enemies beneath your feet. You see, what would happen in Oriental cultures is if you were having a battle and you were the losing king, and you didn't get killed, they tried not to kill you because they had something they wanted to do with you. They would drag you in front of the conquering king. They'd throw you down. They'd probably abused you before that point. But what you would do is the conquering king, as you were laid down before him, they'd stretch out your neck, and that king, the conquering king, would put his foot on your neck to show that you were completely submitted to him. You were his enemy, and he has conquered you. And that is going to happen. Jesus, the Lord himself, is going to conquer his enemies and he will bring justice. And you see, these people, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, they had set themselves up as Jesus' enemies. And Jesus is not only declaring he's fully God and he's fully man, but he's saying, and this psalm will come true. My foot will be on your neck. They get it. They understand it. They understand that he's fully God and he's fully man. He is undiminished deity in complete humanity. And that is who the Christ is. By the way, this is absolutely central to Christianity. Romans, the book of Romans, the greatest treatise of the gospel, when it talks about at the very beginning, the introduction about who Jesus Christ is, it says in Romans chapter one, verse three. Concerning his son, who is born of the descendant of David, according to the flesh, he is fully man. Verse four, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ, our Lord, fully man, fully God. And let me tell you, there is no one ever who has come to this earth who is like this. He is absolutely unique. Jesus said in John 14, six, I'm the way I'm the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Did you want life? 
Did you want forgiveness? Jesus says, it's found in me. Verse 46, after they heard this, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Let me ask you, do you really want the truth about the most important questions of life? Let me tell you what you need to do. You need to trust Christ and you need to listen and heed the wisdom that he has given us in his word. But friends, the ultimate question in life is not if you have the answers to some of life's most important questions. The ultimate question in life is, what will you do with Jesus? What are you going to do with him? Because just in a few chapters, just a few days from now, Pilate is going to stand up and he's going to say, what shall I do with this Jesus who is called the Christ? And you know what the crowd said? They said, crucify him. But for you today, what do you say? Let me tell you, the path of life is to say, I believe and trust in him. Did you want life? Do you want hope, peace, purpose? It is found in knowing and trusting Jesus, the Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for just this amazing passage. As you have recorded these different encounters with Jesus, we see life. We understand some of the most significant questions and answers ever given. We have insight into reality, into purpose, into where we're going. Because Jesus is articulated and he is provided. So, Father, if there's someone here today who has never trusted you, would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I get it today. I simply turn from self and sin. I trust Jesus as my Lord and my Savior for my sins. Fill me with your life. And I pray, Lord, that for all of us, we'd walk in the newness of life and the greatness of knowing the one true God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.